<clears throat> I've been starting off each one of our, our, our gatherings together before we get in the Word and remind you that Jesus loves you, and God is always doing good for you, and um, uh, the Bible tells us this, and another passage of Scripture for you, this is one of my favorites, I wanted to do this one a long time ago, but others have been put on my heart, and, and this is one of my favorites, but it's in Romans chapter 8, verses 37 through 39, where it talks about uh, God's great love for us, and listen, it says this, it says, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Think about that. What's you're more than a conqueror? That's a pretty cool thing to be considered a conqueror. You know, you think about. I like to watch a lot of old uh, war movies and uh, where where the guys I'm rooting for are winning. You know, they've they've been victorious. They're a conqueror, and um, <clears throat> but more than a conqueror through Him who loved us. And then Paul goes on. And he says this. He says, "For I am persuaded that neither death nor life." nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created, other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a pretty awesome love. It's a pretty awesome love, and it's a, it's a love that God offers that, that can't be found anywhere else in the world. So, as we look to chapter 7 and read more about our Savior, Lord, and uh, our Savior, uh, Jesus Christ, and um, the things that he did while he was here on this earth, we're going to pick back up in uh, verse 18. And when we started this chapter last week, I pointed out that the events recorded in this uh, chapter, um, they continue to account the things that Jesus did and the things that Jesus said. Um, it's, it's, it's a historical book. Uh, it's a book of truth. It's a book of life. And in these events that we've been reading about, they're doing some very specific things for us. The first is, is that these events that we're reading about, we're going to read about two more today, they're intended to validate Jesus' authority. And to validate, validate his teachings about the kingdom of God that we read about in the beginning of this chapter, the words that Jesus spoke uh, um, uh, on the mountaintop, which is referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. Additionally, these events serve to not only validate, but to authenticate Jesus as the Messiah. More evidence for him being the one who has prophesied about in the Old Testament, the Messiah, the one whom the children of Israel were looking and waiting for. And lastly, these events in this chapter <clears throat> ultimately show us the heart of compassion that Jesus has for those who are discouraged. And, and Debbie was even mentioning that this morning, this this. This, this Savior that we have who we can go to as this heart of compassion for those who are discouraged, for those who are without hope, and those who are suffering. And in the first 17 verses, we read about two events last week that illustrate these things. Uh, more specifically, um, uh, this heart of compassion that Christ has. And the first involved that Roman centurion uh, who was living in, in, in charge of the city Capernaum. And um, he had sent these elders of the Jews to Jesus to plead with him. It says that they came and they begged Jesus on behalf of this Roman centurion to come and heal his servant who was sick and ready to die. And in those first 17 verses, we were told that the centurion was a friend to the Jewish people and that he loved the nation of Israel. 
But more importantly, I think the greater thing that we were told, which we talked about last week, um, was that he demonstrated what Jesus called a great faith, a great faith in Jesus, in the person of Jesus. And, and he referred to the authority that Christ had, which was not of this world. Uh, uh, and so a great faith in Jesus and in the power and authority that he had or that he still has, has, which gave him in that moment at that time and still today the ability to heal with a command just to speak it out, and it would be so. And we know that's exactly what Jesus did for the centurion servant, and when the, the ones who came to Jesus, um, when they returned back, they found the, the servant who had been near death healed. Now, the second event that we read about took place, we're told, in the very next day in the city of Nine. And when Jesus was entering the city, he encountered a crowd of people who were following this widow woman, who was leading a funeral procession, the procession for a funeral procession for her only son who had just died. And when Jesus saw this woman, he spoke words of hope into her hopeless situation, saying, Do not weep. And then Jesus, having compassion on her, we're told that he miraculously healed her son back to life and presented him to her. And when we ended last week, we read how those who had witnessed Jesus raised this young man back to life, that, 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 that those who had witnessed these things responded by declaring some things about Jesus. First of all, they declared that he was a great prophet of God, and through him, God had, that God had visited his people. Consequently, this news about Jesus and about the miraculous things that he had done, it spread, we're told, it spread throughout all of Judea. And, and Jesus, at this point, was becoming more recognized, more famous. His ministry was growing. And, and um, as it went into Judea and to all the surrounding regions, in fact, even John the Baptist's disciples were told, went to tell John about the things that Jesus had done and about what the people were saying about Jesus. And, and this is where we pick back up this morning in Luke chapter seven, verse 18. If you'll follow along with me, I'll read. And it says, then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all of these things, the things that we've just read about, about Jesus raising this, this man, this young man back to life. And, and John, calling two of his disciples, verse 19, to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you coming, are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And that, at that, and that, very hour he cured, speaking of Jesus, many infirmities, afflictions, evil spirits, and, and, and too many blind he gave sight. And Jesus, and, and, and Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things that you have seen and heard, that the blind see, that the lame walk, that the lepers are cleansed, that the deaf hear, that the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to him and blessed, verse 23, if this is a key verse, if you want to underline it in your Bible this morning, it said, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And th that, that last statement was also a word that Jesus was telling his disciples to take back to John, not just the things that he had seen, they had seen him do, but this message, John, blessed is he who is not offended by me or because of me. Then, verse 24, when the messengers of John had departed, he, Jesus, began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. And Jesus takes a moment here to honor John. 
He says, what did you go out in the wilderness to see, a reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see, a man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously appareled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those who are born of woman, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Verse 29, and when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God. That literally means declared the righteous acts of God, having been baptized with the baptism of John, meaning those who believed. But the Pharisees and the, and the lawyers rejected, verse 39, or verse 30, they rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And that's speaking to their unbelief. And the Lord said, to what then shall I liken the men of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, I played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. And you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and, and sinners. But, verse 35, another key verse, wisdom is justified by all her children. Lord, again, take these words that we've read, and may they go forth, Lord, like rain, like your word says, and do the work that you intend for it to do. Father, soften our hearts, open our minds. God, give us understanding this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, as we begin to read about this account first with John, um, you could be asking yourself, as, as do I when I really read this, is like, what's going on? And, and what's going on with John? And to, and, to, and to help understand what's going on here, we must take into account that at this time, John the Baptist, according to Mark chapter 6, and there are other accounts of this also in some of the other gospel messages, but, but Mark chapter 6 is probably the most detailed one in recording for us what's going on here. But, but we've got to understand that, that according to Mark chapter 6, at this time, talked about a little bit last week, John was in prison. He had been arrested by Herod. And Herod um, was the... Um, he was the king of Israel, but he had been appointed by the Roman government. He was a puppet, a friend of Rome. And uh, he was an ungodly man like, like none other. And he used his power to take a woman by the name of Herodias, who was also his brother Philip's wife, for his own wife. But John the Baptist, being a godly man and also one who was willing to speak the truth, he publicly denounced what Herod had done and said it was not lawful for Herod to have taken his brother's wife. Consequently, Herod had John put into prison. And um, this is where John was when these disciples, when his disciples reported to him these things about Jesus, what we're told in verse 18. 
And the point is, is like we'd, le- like we'd read about last week with the widow woman who had lost her only son and was in this position of hopelessness and a discouraging place, so too was John the Baptist at this moment in a situation where circumstances was discouraging, were discouraging, and hope was fading. I don't think John was without hope. I think he was questioning. Remember, John's whole life, when we we go back to even his conception with his mother and um, the things that were promised there to his to his father, who was a high priest, and I want to go back all of those through all of those things. But up to now, we had a clear understanding that John's whole life had been set apart and dedicated to preparing the way for the Messiah. He's the one that had been prophesied about, so much so that Jesus said he's the greatest of all the prophets, as we read here. And in preparing the way for the Messiah, we know that he had preached to the people, saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, for the kingdom of heaven is here. Furthermore, John himself had baptized Jesus in the river, the Jordan River, and in doing so, he witnessed the Holy Spirit with his own eyes descending upon Jesus, it says, in the form of a dove, and he had, he had heard God the Father speak, and, and in doing so, John had openly testified to all the crowds of people at that moment that Jesus is the Son of God whom he had been preparing the way for. And so the fact that he was in prison now when the Messiah, who had been sent to establish God's kingdom, had finally come, it was a discouraging thing, as you can imagine, for John. And even a confusing thing. Confusing in the sense that John was on God's team. He was on God's side, right? And if God had just sent his son to set up his kingdom, then why was he, John, stuck in prison? But it had to have also been, a confusing, been confusing for John in the sense that the main part of John's message, if you remember, the main part of his message that he had been given by God to preach in preparation for the coming of the Messiah was a message of a coming judgment. That was part of John's message. A message of a coming judgment brought by God's Messiah. And in Luke chapter 3, if you want, you can look back there to some of the words that John had speaking in a prophetic way about the Messiah, saying in verses 16 and 17 to the people who were coming to him, he says, Indeed, I baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. But here it comes, he says, listen, he says, His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out the threshing floor. And gather the wheat, the fruit, into his barn. But the chaff, the, the, the worthless part, he says, he will burn with an unquenchable fire. However, it was becoming apparent that Jesus had not come, at least at this time, from our understanding of things, John, not so much yet, but it, it, it had become clear, it was becoming apparent that Jesus had not come to judge or to condemn He was even showing kindness and compassion to the Romans. The very thing that the Pharisees were so ticked at him about. So when John received the reports reports about Jesus from his disciples, he told, 
told of Jesus' ministry of compassion and the merciful things that Jesus was doing, you can see perhaps from John's point of view that things didn't seem to be adding up. What's going on here? And this is why John, as verses 19 and 20 tells us here in our text, that he had sent two of his disciples back to Jesus once he had heard the news of these things and asked Jesus, are you the coming one or is there another? Are we to look for another? In light of this, we see that like so many people at this time, and if you read the gospel accounts, you know, so many people at this time, even, even like so many people, even like, like Jesus' own disciples, John, in this moment, misunderstood the ministry of the Messiah. He misunderstood. The Pharisees misunderstood. Jesus' disciples, it says, didn't fully understand until even, until after Christ was resurrected. But they misunderstood the ministry of the Messiah as they were expecting him to be a conquering king who would strike down Israel's enemies, a conquering king who would restore what had been lost or taken from them, and a conquering king who ultimately would set up his kingdom here upon this earth, the Messiah. And there are many words of God found in the book of the Psalms and also in many other prophetic books like Obadiah, Amos, and Micah, which tell us of the messianic future throughout the spectrum of God's covenant that had been made with David, a covenantal promise made with David. First in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, where God said that the house and the kingdom and the throne of David would be established forever at the return of the Messiah, at the coming of the Messiah. However, there are also many other passages of Scripture, as you know, in, prophetic, in a prophetic sense about the Messiah, uh, speaking also about the, the, the prophetic future of the, of the Messiah in Psalm 27 and in Isaiah 53, many others like it that speak about the coming of the Messiah, not as the conquering king, but as the suffering servant. And even though these other prophetic words about the Messiah were known by the religious scholars of the day. They did not understand how the Messiah could be both a conquering king and a suffering servant because they didn't realize that the coming of the Messiah would be a twofold event, something that we understand today. Understand that, that Jesus would first come as the suffering servant, as the Lamb of God who would die on the cross, who would rise from the grave in order to make a payment for our sins and give to us this gift of forgiveness and this gift of eternal life. And that then he would also come back at a later time. A mystery that Paul says has been revealed to him. A later time, after an age, the church age, the age of grace, when then the conquering king, which we read about in the book of Revelation, he will then at that time come to gather the wheat into his barn. And he would burn the chaff with an unquenchable fire. And the simple reason for why, here's, here's how it relates to us this morning, guys. You see, the simple reason for why so many did not understand at that time is because they had expectations. Have you ever had expectations? You see, they had expectations about what God should do and when God should do it, rather than live with an anticipation of what God said he was going to do. And there's a big difference between anticipation and expectation. 
Yet Jesus says here in verse 23, the verse I said you should underline, he says in verse 23, he said, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And because people at this time were living with expectation and not just anticipation, many were offended when their expectations of the Messiah were not met. Many rejected him. We were even told at one time that Jesus spoke words to the multitudes, to these crowds that were gathering and following after him. He spoke words of truth to them that did not meet their expectations and we're told that at that time, many left him. They had expectations of who the Messiah should be, what he should do. Yet Jesus says here in verse 23, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. In other words, blessed are we, guys, blessed are we when we live with this anticipation of the Lord and in the promises that he's given to us without expectation about what God should do and when he should do it for us. As if God should operate in our time frame or do things in accordance to the way that we see fit. And in those moments when we have expectations, even expectations upon God, that, and then they're not met, then you know what? We're like these people where we can become offended. And then with that comes discouragement. With that comes doubt, fear, just like what John was experiencing. And we question, God, are you who you said you were? Are you going to do what you said you were going to do? And because of expectation... <clears throat> we, we lose sight of the anticipation of the truth of what God has said. Now the problem, another thing of uh, point of application here for us, is the problem that John was having is the same problem that we all have at one time or another. At least it's a problem I struggle with, in that John was walking, he was living his life in this moment by what he could see with his eyes. Literally, I guess by what he could hear, but it was something physical, something tangible. In, 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 in that, there's limitations. We're confined to what we can see. We're confined to what we hear in that we're not omniscient. We're not omnipotent. We don't see the whole plan, the big picture like God does. And John, in this moment, he was, he was limited by what he could see with his eyes or hear with his ears. And, he was, he, and when he was walking or living or making decisions in light of that, we know that he was ultimately not living or walking ultimately by faith, faith in God. And as a result, he was discouraged. Surely he was confused. And this is what, what caused him to doubt. Likewise, when we walk by, by, by sight, by what we see or by what we hear, and not by faith, we will also become discouraged. We will. We'll become discouraged. We'll become confused. And in those moments, in those times, we enter into doubt. Now, I want to point out that there is a difference between doubt and unbelief, okay? They're similar, yes, but there is a big difference between doubt and unbelief. Nowhere in this message in John's doubt does Jesus condemn John, ridicule him, speak ill of him. As a matter of fact, when, when the disciples of John ret return, Jesus honors John. But I think it's safe to say that, you know, we talked about faith last week, you know, where God desires for us to have great faith because there's a blessing in great faith. 
But sometimes we don't have great faith. Sometimes we don't have any faith. It goes way even beyond doubt. And sometimes we have little faith. But don't confuse your, your doubts that we all have occasionally with, with this absence of faith, which is unbelief. You see, in pointing out that there's a difference, I want to say that doubt is a matter of the mind. And it needs to be dealt with. It needs to be reconciled. But doubt's a matter of the mind, and it is usually the fruit of us not understand what God is doing or why he's doing it. And that's why expectations can be dangerous and why we need to live in the place of anticipation and not in the place of expectation. But it's a matter of the mind, and it's usually the fruit of us not understanding what God is doing or why he's doing it. You know what? That's an okay thing. It should be like that more times than not because it says God's ways are higher above our ways. He didn't think like we think, thank God. He didn't do like we do, and thank God for that. And so in those moments, what do we do? We go back to these promises that I've been reading to you on Sunday mornings where you go to go, okay, I don't understand. I have some doubts. I don't know what's going on, but I know that Jesus loves me. And that God is always doing good for me. But it's a matter of the mind. And, and, and it's when we don't understand. It's, a, it's, the, it's usually the fruit, like I said, of us not understanding what God is doing or why he's doing it. And, and in and of itself, doubt is not a sinful thing. Let me tell you that this morning. I love what Oswald Chambers says. He said this. He said, doubt is not always a sign that a man is a wrong Doubt is not always a sign that, that, that a man is wrong. It may be a sign that he is thinking, period. Yet, guys, if our doubts are left unchecked by the things that we know to be true, our doubts will lead us down a dangerous road. Doubts will lead us down a road that is paved with fear, with worry, and with confusion, and it leads us ultimately to this place of discouragement. That's the destination of doubt. So doubt, which is a matter of the mind, is different than unbelief, because unbelief, unlike doubt, remember, doubt's a matter of the mind, and unbelief, guys, unbelief's a matter of the will. The whole book of Romans just really describes that, that unbelief isn't because of lack of understanding Unbelief is an issue of the heart. It's a lack of will. In that unbelief is a refusal to believe God's word and to obey what he tells us to do. And in John's case, his question was not the fruit of willful unbelief, but a question of doubt that rose up because of the physical and the emotional trials that he was enduring. So John did what any of us might do in this situation and probably have done when we asked Jesus to confirm, to prove himself, to affirm to us, to validate. He asked Jesus, John did, to confirm what he believed about Jesus in order to do away with the doubts that had entered into his mind. Are you the coming one, or should we look for another? And you know what? What John was looking for is exactly what Jesus did, and Jesus did away with John's doubts. And Jesus did this when he responded to the question that John's disciples had brought to him. But Jesus did so, listen, Jesus did so in such a loving and caring way. He did so not by giving them a lecture on theology or a lecture on prophecy 
Rather, Jesus, if you look according to verse 21, answered John's questions without even speaking a word initially. It says, by curing many of the infirmities, many of their afflictions, and by giving sight to many who were blind. And the point is, these signs and these wonders that Jesus did, they were his credentials then and now. They were his credentials that affirmed that Jesus was in fact the coming one, the one who had John been looking, the one that John had been looking for, the one that John had been prophesying about, the one that John had been waiting for. In light of this, we see that these things that Jesus did were designed to do away with John's doubts and to get John's mind set back on the things that he knew to be true. To the fact, guys, that he had seen the heavens part and the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus like a dove. A truth that John knew. To the fact that he heard the voice of God come down from heaven and say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But, pleased, but primarily back to the, to the truth of God's word. Right? Primarily back to the truth of God's word which declared these things that Jesus was doing. The things that the Messiah would do when he would come. For instance, the things that the prophet Isaiah had foretold of, which John knew of, Isaiah chapter 29, verses 18 through 19, where it says, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall be seen out of obscurity and out of the darkness. The humble also shall increase in their joy, uh, their joy in the Lord, and the poor among the men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Jesus didn't just speak these words as he, he, he told John's disciples to go back and tell him this. First, he gave them a physical demonstration of the prophetic things that had spoken about the Messiah and what he would do. And also in Isaiah chapter 35, it, 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 it <coughs> prophesied of these things in verses 4 and 6, which says this. It says, say to those who are fearful hearted. You know what, this is a... This is a this is a message to somebody for sure, specifically, if not all of us this morning, especially in light of the times that we live in, when we look around us and see the direction that the world is going, our society, our culture, and how evil and darkness is, seems to be so, so pervasive in the culture that we live in. But listen, God says he sees it and he's going to deal with it. And so here it says, it says, so to those who are fearful hearted, be strong. Do not fear. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, and the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing, for water shall burst forth in the wilderness <clears throat> and streams in the desert. Literally, life where there has been none. And the point is, Jesus patiently, first of all, I hope you see this, how, how he's interacting with John in this situation when he has doubts, is, is that Jesus is patiently and gently reaffirming to John who he was and lovingly dealt with these doubts that had filled his mind. And in doing so, he led John back to the place of faith, to the place of walking in faith, living in faith. And the same is true for us when we have doubts which often come upon us when we're in the midst of a physical or even an emotional trial. And we too can go to Jesus, guys. You can go to Jesus with your doubts. And also to the word of God, which John was ultimately brought to by Jesus, to the word of God that reminds us of these things that are true. 
to have our doubts turned into faith. Remember, in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, it simply says this. It says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now, as we read on through the text here in, in chapter 7, we're kind of given the impression that this encounter between Jesus or John's disciples and Jesus as they came back, that, that this encounter between, between them was something that the crowds who were following Jesus were witness to. Because in verse 24, it tells us that after John's disciples left Jesus, or after, after John's disciples left, that Jesus began talking about John the Baptist. And, and um, he asked the people what it was they had gone out in the wilderness to see. They all knew who John was. Many of them were not following Jesus because of John's message, because of John's work. And in doing so, in Jesus asking this question, who did you go out to see, he, he went on to honor John, to praise John for who he was and what he'd been called to do. It wouldn't be long from now, from this time, that, 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 that John would have his head chopped off. And he had done the work that God had called him to do as a faithful and just servant. And this is why Jesus, to these people, he rhetorically asks at the end of verse 24, he said, did you go out into the wilderness to see a reed shaken by the wind? And then in verse 25, he asked again if they'd gone out to see a man, referring to John, was, was he someone who was clothed in soft garments, someone who lived in luxury, um, or someone who indulged themselves with the things of this life? Was this who you saw? Is this who you went out to see? And the answer to these questions was an obvious no. John was anything but those things. He didn't bend to the opinions of the leadership. He, he stood strong um, for what was true. He spoke the truth. You know, he didn't seek the luxurious things of these lives. And the question, the answer to the question was no. Yet by these, yet by these questions, Jesus was pointing out the fact that ultimately that John was no compromiser, right? That he didn't compromise. He did not bend this way or that way when adversity came or when people's opinions came, uh, and nor was he about the things of this life. On the contrary, John, he could have been compared to a, a, an oak tree which stood firm against the forces that came against him, even while in prison. And his attentions and efforts were not spent on obtaining the things of this world which are passing away, but on his, his time and his attentions, his energies were given over to the coming of the Messiah. And ultimately for himself, <coughs> excuse me, laying hold of the eternal things that the Messiah would bring. And Jesus, continuing to lift John up and to honor him, said in verse 26 that John was a prophet, and, and, and he said literally that he was more than a prophet. And we might think, why? Why would he say that? What was so significant? What was so special about John? But Jesus said this about John, that, that John was a prophet who, 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 because his, his, he was a prophet whose ministry was prophesied about the greatest among all the prophets, a prophet whose ministry was prophesied about. And, and furthermore, he was literally the last, even though he's mentioned in the New Testament, he was literally the last of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant promise, uh, prophets, the last one. 
the last. And he had the great privilege to be God's messenger who introduced the Messiah to Israel, to the world. Nevertheless, Jesus makes the point, this point, and um, <laughs> he makes this point about John and says, in verse 28, that to the least person in the kingdom of God, that the least of the persons of the kingdom of God is greater than John. Which, guys, is simply a, resi- a, re- a reference to, to position. It's not a reference to character. Jesus is making a distinction between two things here for us. But in, in reference to position, the least of us in the kingdom of God today is greater than John. Why? Why is that? And what does that mean? Because, because even though John had the great privilege of being the herald for the Son of God, as, as one of the greatest prophets or the greatest prophet who ever lived and proclaimed that, that his kingdom, that the Messiah's God's kingdom was, was coming, we who, are, who can be least in the kingdom of God are greater because we who believe in Jesus today, according to John chapter 15, verse 15, we have a greater honor than prophet of, of bearing the name of prophet. We have the, a greater a greater title, a greater name in that we are told in that passage of Scripture, John 15, verse 15, that we have the honor of being the friends of the king. Friends. Jesus says, no longer do I call you, but now I call you friend. Friend. Not only this, but we, the children of the kingdom of God, as the kingdom of God, you know what else we are? The Bible says that we're co-inheritors. That everything that has been given to Christ is co-inherited to us. Why is it greater? Because we're into this new covenant. A covenant where we enter into a relationship with God by grace. And everything is made available to us because of what Jesus has done. And and we as co-inheritors, the Bible tells us that one day we we will sit with Jesus in a place of honor when we get to heaven. Listen to Ephesians chapter chapter 2. I'm going to read 10 verses, but listen, it's a lot. It says, and, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and in sin, in which you once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air. And that's phenomenal in just itself that Christ knowing, God knowing that we were on Satan's team, still did this awesome work in us and for us. He says, he says, you he made alive, right, who were dead in trespasses and sin. And he says, the spirit now, in verse 2, the spirit now who works in the sons of disobedience among whom also worked once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of flesh and of the mind. And we, by nature, were children of wrath just as the others. But God, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up together. And he has made us to sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that place of honor, that in the ages to come he might show us the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any one of us should boast, for we are his workmanship 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared for so that we should walk in him. And because of these things, these, those of us who are the least are greatest, they're greater than any that has come before. Not because of who we are, but because of what we've received as a result of this new covenant that we've entered into. <clears throat> because of Jesus. And after speaking these words of praise, if you'll see here in the text as we kind of wrap this up this morning, as we're speaking these words of praise about John, Jesus went on to speak words of condemnation against the men of that generation, specifically against the Pharisees and the religious leaders who, according to verse 30, had rejected the will of God for themselves, even though the truth had been presented to them through John the Baptist. It goes back to this idea that, that unbelief is, a, is an act of the will. They had the same evidence. They had the same proof. They had the same prophetic account being brought forth from John into the light. And they rejected. And now through Jesus, the Son of God, they were also rejecting him. They had rejected John and rejected Jesus. And in light of this, Jesus compared these religious leaders to children. Not that they were childlike, but that they were acting childish. In that nothing could please them. And the fact of the matter is, is John was an individual who declared a stern message of repentance. He had harsh words to speak. A message of repentance and judgment. And they said about John, these who rejected him, he said, he has a demon, Jesus said, but Jesus was different than John in that he mingled with the people. He interacted with them. He showed kindness and compassion. He preached a message uh, of grace, a salvation message of grace. And they said about Jesus, opposite of what they said about John, they said, well, John is hard and he has a demon, but Jesus, you, you're a glutton, a wine-bibber, and a friend to the sinners. You're too soft. And the point is, is no matter how the truth was presented to them. And, and I think, guys, we need to look at our own hearts in light of this this morning. Because the truth is, is God will use many different people in many different ways, or God will come and speak to us um, in a way that we need to be spoken to, and sometimes it might be a little bit more stern than we like. Other times it may be more soft than what we expected. But we need to check our heart and see where we're at and receive what God has for us because no matter how the truth was presented to these people or what type of person presented the truth to them, they avoided it. And we don't want to ever be like that. That's spiritual. That's being a spiritual child rather than receiving what God has, even when it may not be presented in the way that we feel comfortable with. They avoided the truth. And the reality was, they were the problem, not John and not Jesus. They were the problem because they had rejected the will of God for their lives and they rejected the people, the persons who were preaching about the will of God to them. I'm gonna end with this this morning in verse 35. The worship team wants to come back up. In verse 35 it says, but wisdom is justified by all her children. And, and, and this ties so closely to even the, 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 the questions of doubt that John had or even the, the times of lack of faith that we may enter into or the, the doubts that we have, whether it is of the mind or of the heart, both of those places <clears throat> can be not good for us. 
where we doubt, where we have fears, where we have discouragement, where we have lack of faith. And what God is telling us as these verses and these things that Jesus had done, the fulfillment of the prophecies that he was even pointing pointing um, John back to is what Jesus was ultimately saying by verse 35. Is he, says, he says, ultimately, the guys, the proof is, is, is in the, the pudding. How does it play out in your life? And Jesus talked about at the Sermon on the Mount, he says, he says, why do you call out to me as Lord and yet not do the things that I say? He says, I will tell you what the man is like that does not do this where we build upon a foundation of sand and the storms come. And when the storm comes, that life, that house, this is what we build is laid to ruin. Why? Because it's ultimately tested. And when it's put to test, it does not stand. But here Jesus says wisdom, true wisdom, is justified by all of our children. What is born forth from of our lives when we follow after God should be evidence to us that what we're doing is right. The way that we're going is right. And Jesus said that the proof that the wisdom, specifically here, the proof that the wisdom that he has and that John had spoken about in regards to Jesus, that, that, that the proof in all this was with the fruit. The fruit that was being produced in the lives of the people who received the good news message. What fruit has been produced in your life? What fruit has been produced in my life as a result of building upon the rock, as a result of building upon the good news message that Jesus has brought with us to us? In other words, God's wisdom is dis- demonstrated, guys, ultimately in and by the change, changed lives, in and by the changed lives of those of us who believe. And in those times that we doubt, we can go to God and he can remind us of what we once were and what we have become and where he still desires to take us. In my life, before Christ, as many of you know and as many of you also experienced in your own life, my life was a wreck. The fruit of the life that I lived and the things that I believed in brought forth destruction. No life, no peace, no joy, No goodness, no kindness, no faithfulness, no self-control. But it has not been that way since I've given my life to Christ. Wisdom is justified by all of her children. And God has given me evidence. God has given me proof to remind me in those times when I doubt to stay the course, to finish the race that has been set before us, to persevere, to endure for the, for the reward, for the prize that has been laid up for us. This is the encouragement to receive this morning. And may we do this as we live in anticipation of our Lord's return. Amen. Will you guys stand? Father, thank you, God, for this time together. Thank you for these reminders, Lord. Thank you for these encouragements. Lord, let us not be condemned in those times by the enemy or by our own hearts when, we're, when we have doubts, Lord. We know and you, from what we read here this morning that you desire for us to, to come to you, to cast our fears, to cast our doubts, to cast our worries, and to even cast our unbelief, Lord, at your feet, knowing that you will gently and lovingly and kindly, Lord, point us to the truth, give us reasons to believe. Take us off that road that leads to a place of discouragement and put us back in that place, God, where we have hope in you. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.